Alan will be publishing a book, I should say Macmillan Publishers will be publishing Alan's book on the Iron Brigade next fall, 1960. It seems that our past programs have included few talks devoted to the history or the happenings of individual units of the Civil War, and we've covered the general war itself quite thoroughly. So it seems appropriate at this time that we do begin to consider some of the individual units who played an important part in the war. You'll notice from your newsletter that our meeting in March uh, will bring us James I. Robertson, who is currently editor of Civil War History, our quarterly publication which all Roundtable members receive as a part of their membership. And he will speak to us on Jackson Stonewall, the Stonewall Brigade. So we're going to begin possibly a series of talks on individual units, and I'm sure you'll welcome them. Without further ado, Alan Nolan. As I have said, Browner Farm is sometimes called Groveton. It is also sometimes called Gainesville. But it took place on the Bronner Farm. It was, of course, the beginning of the Battle of Second Bull Run. It is also especially noteworthy as a classic example of the decisiveness of the fog of war and an army's lost opportunity. And finally, it was the beginning of the combat career of John Gibbon's Brigade of Western Regiments, which were uh, later to be known as the Iron Brigade. It is at first necessary to place the battle in the context of the Second Bull Run campaign. We have seen, of course, how General Lee split his army at the outset of this campaign. We have seen uh, his sending Jackson's wing from the Rappahannock, where the Army of Northern Virginia uh, confronted uh, Pope's new army of Virginia. Uh, he sent Jackson's wing around the federal right through thoroughfare gap to the federal rear. Having completed his raid on Bristow and Manassas Junction on the night of August 26, Jackson, of course, was at risk. The attack on Bristow and Manassas had disclosed his presence. He needed to avoid a battle with the Federals until Longstreet, who was following his same general course from the Rappahannock, as these maps and the discussion today have indicated, till Longstreet could come up. Having learned of Jackson's presence in his rear, Pope had ordered his army and the leading divisions of the Army of the Potomac, which were arriving from the peninsula, to concentrate at Gainesville, a village on the Warrenton Turnpike that we were passing through yesterday. Uh, and it was also, of course, a village on the Manassas Gap Railroad. The federal strategy was precisely the opposite of the Confederate. The Federal High Command set out to find Jackson with the intent of overwhelming him before Longstreet could come up. The result was that Jackson had to hide his approximately 24,000 soldiers, and Pope and his divisions sought to find him. So beginning on the night of August 27, for 24 hours, there ensued a very deadly game of hide-and-seek that was to end on the Bronner Farm. Jackson's wing was composed of three divisions. 
his own division, Jackson's, under uh, General Brigadier General William B. Tolliver, was composed of four infantry brigades. Colonel William Taylor's Stonewall Brigade, the first brigade of that division, Colonel Bradley T. Johnson's second brigade, Colonel Alexander G. Tolliver's third brigade, and Brigadier General William E. Stark's fourth brigade. The division's artillery under Major Lindsay M. Shoemaker included eight batteries. For convenience sake, I will in this paper refer to this division as Tolliver's division, although its technical name was Jackson's. Jackson's second division was General Richard S. Ewell's, also four brigades and six batteries. Ewell's brigades were commanded respectively by Brigadier General Alexander R. Lawton, Brigadier General Isaac R. Trimble, Brigadier General Jubal A. Early of the Longstreet controversy, as has just been described by Gary Gallagher, and Colonel Henry Forno. Forno's command was identified in the division as Hayes Brigade. A.P. Hill's Light Division, six brigades and seven batteries, was of course also of Jackson's wing, but Hill's division was not a factor at Bronner Farm. Pope's Army of Virginia, to reiterate again, was composed of three corps, Siegel's first, Banks second, and McDowell's third. In regard to the preliminaries of Browner Farm, the divisions of McDowell's corps need to be identified. In addition to Baird's Cavalry Brigade, McDowell's corps was composed of three divisions. McDowell's first division was Brigadier General Rufus King's. Brigadier General James B. Ricketts had McDowell's second division, and John F. Reynolds commanded the third division of McDowell's corps. Let's talk a little bit about King's first division of McDowell's corps. He had four infantry brigades, each with a battery attached. The first brigade was Brigadier General John P. Hatches. It was five regiments and Garish's 1st New Hampshire Light Artillery. Abner Doubleday commanded the 2nd Brigade, composed of the 76th New York, the 95th New York, and the 56th Pennsylvania, and Monroe's Battery D of the 1st Rhode Island Light Artillery. Brigadier General Marcina Patrick led King's 3rd Brigade, four New York regiments, and Reynolds Battery L, of the 1st New York Light Artillery. The 4th Brigade was Gibbons, known at the time as the Black Hat Brigade because they, they affected the dress hat of the regular army. It was the only all-Western Brigade in the East, composed of the 19th Indiana, the 2nd Wisconsin, the 6th Wisconsin, and the 7th Wisconsin. Gibbons Artillery was Battery B of the 4th U.S., commanded previously by Gibbon himself, and now under Captain Joseph B. Campbell. The battery included a number of Indiana and Wisconsin men who had been detached from the infantry regiments of the brigade and had been transferred to the artillery. Only two of the 16 regiments of King's command had been engaged in anything but skirmishing. One of these two regiments that had battle experience was the 2nd Wisconsin of Gibbon's Brigade. But none of Gibbon's other regiments and none of Doubleday's New York and Pennsylvania regiments had been in battle. 
other than the railroads, and I felt this morning that that railroad presentation was very meaningful and useful to an understanding of this campaign. Other than the railroads, the most prominent man-made landmark in the Gainesville, Virginia area was, of course, the Warrington Turnpike. It was the major thoroughfare between the Rappahannock and the defenses of Washington. Uh, we've discussed its strategic importance. It was obviously a highway for the movement of troops. It was a battleground. And we talked yesterday about how, had it been lost, had the Confederates been able to, to seize it, uh, they could have, this, this battle could have been not only a defeat, but a disaster for the army uh, under Pope. Beginning at Warrenton and going east, it ran through New Baltimore, Buckland Mills, Gainesville, and Groveton. Then it traversed the Henry House Hill, crossed Bull Run at the Stone Bridge, and proceeded on to Centerville. Now, at this point, I would call your attention to the Browner Farm maps, which are in your packet. Uh, one of them is captioned, the battle at Browner Farm, Gibbon commits his brigade. The second is captioned, the battle at Browner Farm, Doubleday reinforces Gibbon. Uh, I also would recommend that if you want to place Browner Farm in context in the course of this discussion, uh, this, this blue map that was handed out on the buses yesterday, or for that matter, several other of these maps will be useful. Of course, those maps uh, very well set forth the Warrington Turnpike. Two other roads deserve our attention here. One is the Pageland Lane, which is just east of Gainesville, and the Sudley Springs Road, which intersected with the Turnpike at Groveton. Both the Pageland Lane and the Sudley, uh, Groveton and Sudley Road, or Sudley Springs Road, appear on the two little Bronner Farm maps. Both of these roads, you will note, ran in the north and south direction. Both of them ran both north and south of the Warrington Turnpike. There were, of course, other landmarks. In addition to the rolling countryside, ridges and wooded areas, although it was not as wooded then, the general area was not as it is now, the highest ground in the area was Stony Ridge, sometimes called Sudley Mountain. It was a heavily wooded em eminence at that time as it is today about 260 feet high, and it rose up approximately a mile north of the turnpike at Groveton. The unfinished railroad, which we have discussed so many times and which we saw yesterday, uh, that grading ran east and west along the southern side of Stony Ridge. In 1862, this area was largely dotted with farms, uh, to a Middle Westerner, I, I can't imagine that they were very good farms, having seen this red, powdery soil. But nevertheless, it was, of course, an agricultural area. One of these farms, along the north side of the turnpike, between Gainesville and Groveton, belonged to a man named John C. Brawner. Stonewall Jackson, by the way, in his report, is the only person to identify uh, the occupancy of that farm. He correctly identified the farm as being the farm of Mr. Bronner. At the level of the turnpike, as we saw yesterday, the, the Bronner farm presented an open field and a small woods as we walked up that uh, farmland yesterday. The woods, which extended for approximately 500 yards east and west, 
and approximately 300 yards north and south, occupied the eastern part of Bronner's ground toward Groveton, but of course not extending that far. The open ground and the wooded ground ran north from the turnpike, and they rose gradually, as we noted as we walked up there yesterday, to a slight ridge, which was approximately 500 yards north of the turnpike and parallel to the turnpike. The crest of that ridge is approximately 200 feet high. Along the crest and west of the woods were the Bronner farmhouse, a barn, and a small orchard. Bronner kept some animals, and several rail fences were located around his farm buildings and along the northern face of that woods. North of the crest on which the Bronner farm buildings rested, the Bronner property was largely unwooded, as it is not today. It's now very much cluttered with uh, growth that was not there in 1862. Open fields with only an occasional clump of trees extended to the unfinished railroad and wooded Stony Ridge. To the west of the farm buildings, Bronner's ground sloped slightly into a dry stream bed and then leveled off at Pageland Lane. To the east, and we were not at this point of the battlefield yesterday, the ground fell off gradually all the way to Groveton. Uh, immediately east of the, of the woods, the ground is considerably lower uh, than it was where we were standing yesterday on the Bronner farm. Brigadier General Tolliver later wrote in, in an article in Battles and Leaders that Browner Farm presented, quote, a farmhouse, an orchard, a few stacks of hay, and a rotten worm fence. Now, that's quite accurate. But the point was that Stony Ridge overlooking the farm was where Stonewall Jackson was in bivouac on the, just before the battle. Assigned to guard the left of Jackson's position, that would be the western approaches, was Colonel Bradley T. Johnson's 2nd Brigade of Tolliver's Division. Having scouted the area, Colonel Johnson has selected the ridge on the Bronner Farm as the key to this position. He placed guns and the 21st Virginia Infantry behind the crest of Bronner Ridge, very close to where we were yesterday. Uh, the 42nd Virginia was positioned in and around the Bronner Woods, the 48th Virginia and the 1st Virginia Battalion were placed just south of Groveton. And his remaining artillery, that is the remaining artillery assigned to Colonel Bradley Johnson, which was four smoothbores, were in reserve at Groveton. As he refined the search for Jackson in the Gainesville area, Pope ordered Siegel's Corps and McDonald's to concentrate at Manassas Junction. On the night of August 27th, King's Division camped along the Warrenton Turnpike near New Baltimore, west of Gainesville and the Bronner Farm. On the next day, the 28th, the division continued eastward on the pike toward Gainesville. Ahead of King, Reynolds' division of McDowell's Corps encountered Bradley Johnson's artillery at the Bronner Farm in the early afternoon of the 28th. Federal guns responded, skirmishers were set forward, and a brief exchange of infantry fire took place. A federal cavalry company reconnoitered the area. In the reports of these, uh, the skirmishing and the artillery response and the, the federal cavalry uh, reconnaissance, there was very much to suggest that the Confederates were nearby in, in, in force, as indeed, of course, they were. But McDowell was convinced that the enemy presence was, quote, 
some rear guard or cavalry party with artillery, unquote, and the movement toward Manassas uh, and away from Jackson continued. Reynolds' division left the turnpike at Pageland Lane and marched southeast toward Manassas Junction. King's soldiers followed Reynolds. But shortly after beginning this movement, the soldiers were halted during the afternoon as Pope, realizing that Jackson was not at Manassas, reconsidered the concentration of the federal forces. In the late afternoon, and we've discussed this as to why this was probably so, uh, Pope decided that Jackson was at Centerville, eight miles east of Gainesville on the Warrington Turnpike. King's division, which was now south of the Turnpike on Pageland Lane, was ordered to march at once back to the Turnpike and uh, march east for Centerville on the Turnpike. The division returned to the Turnpike and started east. It was late afternoon, approximately 5 p.m., and the sun was beginning. It was in the early stages of its descent uh, to sunsetting time. Because of the confused marching and counter-marching of the federal divisions, King was now beyond easy supporting distance of other federal forces. Ahead of Gibbon's untried soldiers and those of Doubleday and the others was the Browner Farm, and just above the Browner Farm loomed Stony Ridge. The naturally aggressive Jackson had been aware of the, this federal traffic on the turnpike during the day. He apparently had intended to attack Reynolds' division as it approached that afternoon because he had moved Tolliver's division and Ewell's to positions on Stony Ridge directly above the Browner Farm. But that attack, which in my judgment probably would have been a mistake on Jackson's part, uh, was forestalled when the Federals left the turnpike, Reynolds left the turnpike, and marched south on Pageland Lane heading for Manassas Junction. But now Jackson saw the Federals reappear on the turnpike and start east for Centerville. King's apparently isolated division was going to march directly across Jackson's front. And as we have previously been told, at about the same time Jackson heard from Lee, Longstreet had reached Thoroughfare Gap, was expected to force it, and was within supporting distance. And Jackson immediately disposed his troops to attack. Hatch's brigade was the first of the brigades in the column of King's division and it had reconnoitered the Browner Farm area ahead of Gibbon after the return to the Turnpike. A regiment of Hatch's infantry, it happened to be the 14th Brooklyn, skirmished north of the Turnpike and Hatch's artillery shelled the woods to the north and east, a little bit to the left from where we were standing yesterday. These skirmishers from the 14th Brooklyn exposed several mounted Confederates east of the Browner Farm toward Groveton but these horsemen promptly withdrew and no alarm was felt. Hatch's brigade marched on and passed out of sight over the hills to the east. Gibbon then put his column in motion, the second brigade in King's division in terms of the order of march, and behind Gibbon's brigade, the brigades of Doubleday and Patrick moved out. Since there was no expectation of battle, convenient marching intervals were established between the brigades. Gibbon's soldiers marched in column of fours with arms at will, the 6th Wisconsin in the lead, followed in order by the 2nd Wisconsin, the 7th Wisconsin, 
in the 19th Indiana, and Battery B brought up the rear of the column. According to one of the Federal officers, the Federals marched along as unsuspectingly as if changing camp. Gibbon's soldiers had heard the artillery fire as Hatch's brigade ahead of them and out of sight exchanged fire with distant Confederate guns. It has been pointed out that in the course of a campaign of this sort, distant artillery was a very commonplace phenomenon. The soldiers of both sides heard distant artillery and they didn't take much notice of it. But suddenly, as the head of Gibbon's column emerged from the cover of the woods at the eastern edge of the Browner property, a Confederate battery fired on it from a position north of the Browner farm. Another battery, firing from the north and west of the farm, promptly opened on Doubleday's and Patrick's soldiers and the rear of Gibbon's men. Believing that the enemy guns were unsupported horse artillery, Gibbon ordered Battery B to the head of his column to respond to the eastern battery firing on the head of his column, and he directed the 2nd Wisconsin, his combat veterans, to silence the battery which was firing toward his rear from up around the farm buildings. Battery B drove rapidly up the turnpike, tore down the turnpike fence, unlimbered, and went into position on a knoll east of the Bronner Woods and just north of the turnpike. We did not stop there yesterday, but we drove by it and there are guns marking that place. As the Federal gunners commenced firing, the 2nd Wisconsin moved through the Bronner Woods toward the second battery. They formed in line of battle as they came out of the woods near the Browner farmhouse and barn and they started forward. As they approached the crest of the ridge, they were suddenly and unexpectedly fired on from their right flank by skirmishers from Stark's brigade of Tolliver's division. In spite of their surprise, the Wisconsin men did not falter. They wheeled to their right and they returned Stark's fire. The flank companies of the Wisconsin regiments were sent forward as skirmishers, and Stark's men withdrew over the crest of the ridge, followed by the Wisconsin skirmishers. Within a few yards, the Federal con skirmishers confronted a larger group of Confederates who were posted in a small grove of trees. Again, shots were exchanged between the two sides as the Wisconsin companies moving with their skirmish line reached the crest of the ridge. Looking north from the crest, the western men at last knew the truth. Thousands of Confederate infantry were filing out of wooded Stony Ridge and advancing toward the Bronner property. At once, Baylor's Stonewall Brigade, also of Tolliver's division, opened fire on the 2nd Wisconsin. Rejoined by its skirmishers, the embattled 2nd Wisconsin returned this fire and held its ground. At this point, Gibbon was aware that he was in trouble and of the force of, of the Confederate assault. He dispatched calls for help to the division commander King and to the brigades of Doubleday and Patrick. He then sent the 19th Indiana on, in to the left to form on the left of the 2nd Wisconsin, which extended his line toward the Bronner farm buildings where we were yesterday talking to the archeologists. The 7th Wisconsin went into the right of the 2nd and he committed the 6th Wisconsin to the right of the 7th. There was a position there in a field east of the Bronner Woods, and the ground there, as I have indicated, was lower than the ground in the woods and on the Bronner Ridge. The men of the 6th Wisconsin looked up to their left 
to the higher ground where their western comrades were fighting. Behind the 6th Wisconsin, the guns of Battery B were at work. The battle was now joined. Gibbon's line was just south of the crest of the Bronner Ridge. From left to right, it followed the ridge line, passed along the edge of the woods, and extended into the field that was east of the woods. There was a large gap in this line between the positions of the 7th and 6th Wisconsin. Battery B had driven off the Confederate battery that had begun the affair, and it now moved to a new position, an advanced position, to fire into this gap. Both of Gibbon's flanks were in the air and were overlapped by the larger Confederate forces even before Confederate reserves entered the battle. In addition to Stark's brigade, the Confederate skirmishers that had surprised the 2nd Wisconsin and Baylor's Stonewall Brigade, Jackson now committed the Confederate line from its position to the right and rear of the 6th. Both of Gibbon's flanks were in the air, and his 2,100 infantry faced 5,200 Southerners in the Confederate brigades initially engaged. And the longer Confederate line overlapped both Federal flanks even before any Confederates entered the, the fray. Gibbon's one battery was no match numerically for the Southern guns, but General Tolliver later recalled the terrible effectiveness of Battery B. He said, the Federal artillery was admirably served, and at one time the annihilation of our batteries seemed inevitable, so destructive was the fire. The terrible odds facing Gibbon's men, of course, did not impress Stonewall Jackson. Shortly after the action commenced, he put in Colonel Tolliver's brigade to the right of Baylor's, extending the Confederate right flank and increasing their infantry to about 6,400 men. Gibbon found himself without available reserves to match the increasing Confederate threat. His repeated calls for help to King and Patrick were fruitless. But Doubleday, because of a direct appeal from Gibbon and not because of an order of King, did pitch in. Shortly after the action commenced, the 56th Pennsylvania and the 76th New York marched along the pike, marched through the woods, and filled this gap in Gibbon's line. From the first infantry fire until the last, the battle continued unabated for more than two hours. It was a stand-up fight at a maximum range of 75 yards, with no respite, and with neither side entrenched nor covered. Trimble's men, for a time, advanced a few yards to the zigzag fence at the woods and forced Doubleday's regiments back briefly. On the Federal right, the 6th Wisconsin also slowly pressed forward and forced Lawton's men back about 20 yards before the Confederates again resumed their original line. Colonel Tolliver's brigade drove in on the Confederate right in time to check and then drive back in advance of the 19th Indiana to the farmhouse. But except for these movements, neither side advanced or retreated, the Confederates holding the farmhouse and the northern edge of the orchard, and the Federals clinging to the farmyard, the southern edge of the orchard, and their line along the northern face of the woods. The fiercest action took place on the Union left, in and around the farm building and orchard. Gibbon never left this part of his line. Gibbon, of course, was to be engaged in many battles after this one but he later said that this was the most terrific musketry fire I ever listened to. General Tolliver reported the fight as one of the most terrific conflicts that can be conceived of. Another Confederate participant wrote that in the gathering darkness, everything around was lighted up by the blaze of musketry and the explosion of balls like a continuous bright flash of lightning. The power of Gibbons fire, Springfield M1861 incidentally, is attested by the Confederate reports. Tolliver referred to Gibbon's numbers as greatly superior to the Confederates. The Southerners were also frankly admiring of the resistance which they met. 
Jackson reported that the Federals maintained their ground with obstinate determination. And Tolliver said that the enemy withstood with great determination the terrible fire which our lines poured upon them. But a participant called the sheet of fire, which extended from each line to the other over the 75 yards, had its devastating effect. In their exposed and stationary position, officers and men were cut down in unusual numbers. Shortly after placing his regiment in line, the second Colonel O'Connor went down mortally wounded to die that night. Major Allen of the same regiment was hit twice, but managed to stay on the field until the fighting ceased. On the Union right, Colonel Cutler of the 6th Wisconsin was disabled by a leg wound. On the other flank of the Federal line, the 19th Indiana's youthful Major May, which is from Virginia until 1860 when he moved to Richmond, Indiana, also went down in the yard of the Browner House, and his wound was fatal. Jackson now committed the brigade of Colonel William B. Tolliver from the same division. He also sent in the brigades of General Isaac R. Trimble and Alexander R. Lawton from Ewell's division and additional artillery, including horse artillery, which was available to him and was commanded by Captain John Pelham. Other Confederate infantry brigades were ordered up, but arrived too late to become seriously engaged. Although he was not ordered to do so, Doubleday sent the 76th New York and the 56th Pennsylvania from his brigade into the gap between the 7th and 6th Wisconsin. They advanced up through the woods and filled that gap. His remaining regiment, that is Doubleday's, the 95th New York, moved to the support of Battery B. Battery D of the 1st Rhode Island Light Artillery of Doubleday's brigade also joined the battle. Now, as is well known, the precise numbers of opposing forces during the Civil War are very difficult to establish because of the state of the reports, or some frequently the absence of reports, of his superior numbers available, and Jackson's entire corps was, was on the ground. He committed someplace between 5,900 and 6,400 infantry. Even after reinforcement by Doubleday's regiments in the Gap, Gibbon was able to field between 2,500 and 2,900 infantry. The two sides were relatively even in artillery engaged. Because of the lateness of its onset and the rapidly descending darkness, and the fight lasted actually into pitch darkness, briefly into the pitch darkness, the fight at Bronner Farm was short. From the first Confederate artillery fire to the last desultory infantry fire, it lasted for approximately three hours, perhaps an hour and a half or two hours of which were intense, but it was a far from sweet fight. According to General Tolliver, it was a stand-up combat, dogged and unflinching, in a field almost bare. There were no wounds from spent balls, he wrote. The confronting lines looked into each other's faces at deadly range, less than 100 yards apart, and they stood as immovable as the painted heroes in a battle piece. It's the end of that quote. There were, of course, some minor advances and retrograde movements by both sides, but essentially, the opposing forces simply planted themselves and blazed away. The Confederates held the farmhouse and the northern edge of the orchard, and their line then extended opposite the Bronner Woods into the low ground in the field east of the woods. The Federals clung to the farmyard, the southern edge of the orchard, and the northern face of the woods, and then extended their line into the same low ground to the east beyond the woods. <laughs> Gibbon, of course, 
was, was uh, fought at Antietam. He was with the 2nd Corps at Gettysburg. He fought at Spotsylvania. In his memoirs, he says, quote, it was the most terrific musketry fire I ever listened to, unquote, in his career. General Tolliver reported that it was one of the most terrific conflicts that can be conceived of, end of quote. General Trimble's report stated, quote, I have never known so terrible a fire as raised on both sides, unquote. And Doubleday wrote, quote, there have been few more unequal contests or better contested fields during the war, unquote. General William B. Tolliver also said that in this fight, there was no maneuvering and very little tactics. It was a question of endurance, and both endured. And of course, this kind of fighting uh, resulted in a fearful toll of casualties. 37% of Gibbon's Western men were casualties, including all four regimental commanders, the lieutenant colonel of the 7th Wisconsin, and the majors of three of four of, of Gibbon's four regiments. <clears throat> the 56th Pennsylvania and the 76th New York from Doubleday's brigade also lost very heavily. The casualties, I think, are percentage-wise, are quite remarkable. 56th Pennsylvania, which I've just mentioned, of Doubleday's brigade had 45% casualties. 76th New York of Doubleday, 40% casualties. In Gibbon's regiments, the 2nd Wisconsin, which had begun the battle, had 65% casualties. The 6th Wisconsin, which was in this low ground to the east of the woods and in a fairly protected position, had 15%. The 7th Wisconsin, along the wood line and about the middle of the federal line, had 28%. The 19th Indiana, fighting over at, at the farmhouse area, had 50% casualties. The brigade as a whole had 37%. On the Confederate side, the total losses exceeded those of the Federals, although I cannot recite their percentages because I don't have those numbers available. And the Federal rifles, as has been indicated, accounted for Division Commanders Tolliver and Richard S. Ewell. Ewell was not seen again until he was appointed a Corps Commander and arrived with a new wife and a wooden leg on the eve of Gettysburg. Nine regimental commanders, including three in the Stonewall Brigade, were killed or wounded. Douglas Southall Freeman has written that the battle was one of Jackson's costliest for the numbers engaged. Darkness and the tacit consent of the opposing commanders terminated the engagement. The surviving Federals returned to the turnpike and ultimately made a painful night march to Manassas. Jackson's men returned to their position on Stony Ridge and the unfinished railroad embankment from which they were to fight uh, more, of course, to the east uh, on the following two days. Reporting that the Federal numbers were greatly superior, General Tolliver reported that the Federals, quote, withstood with great determination the terrible fire which our lines poured upon them, unquote. Stonewall Jackson struck a similar note in his report. He wrote that the Federals, quote, maintained their ground with obstinate determination, unquote. And Stonewall Jackson's admiring biographer, the Englishman G.F.R. Henderson, was later to write this of Bronner Farm on August 28. The men who faced each other that August evening fought with a gallantry that has seldom been surpassed. The Federals, surprised and unsupported, bore away the honors. The Western Brigade, commanded by General Gibbon, 
displayed a coolness and steadfastness worthy of the soldiers of Albura, end of quote. Now, I have stated that Browner Farm represents an example of the fog of war and a lost opportunity. I've also said that on the night of August 28, after this battle, King's division marched to Manassas Junction, away from Jackson's Corps, for which the Federal Army had been searching diligently for all these hours. King's movement gave Lee time, time to join Longstreet and Jackson. It also removed the one Federal force interposing between the two Confederate Corps. It seems plain that King's decision to march away eliminated, at the least, the chance to assemble King's division, Reynolds division, and Ricketts to confront Jackson before Longstreet came up. To these divisions, Siegel's Corps, and your maps will indicate how close these people were, could probably have been added. Perhaps banks could have been added. In any event, two corps uh, could have assailed Jackson at dawn on August 29, as the rest of the Federal Army approached the field and before Longstreet's arrival. Uh, the events of that night of August 28 are even more uh, ironic in that Reynolds uh, had ridden back from the uh, direction of Mass Manassas Junction uh, shortly after the firing had ceased at Browner Farm and had met with King. And King had agreed to maintain his position, and Reynolds had said he would therefore bring up his division. Uh, also, King had sent a message to Ricketts, who was over at Thoroughfare Gap, and had told Ricketts about this engagement and that he was going to maintain his position. And Ricketts had communicated back that he would bring his division to the Bronner Farm area. In any event, I think that, that uh, but for the, the uh, these curious behavior of these general officers uh, on the night of August 28th, a joinder of Jackson and Longstreet uh, could very well have been prevented on the 29th. Now, these larger consequences were beyond the control, of course, of the Bronner Farm participants. Uh, we should always remember that the, the real participants in warfare are the, are the common soldiers. Corps Commander McDowell was lost on the night of August 28. He was looking for Pope. He was lost in the woods. Division Commander King, who suffered from epilepsy, was ill on the night of August 28. He was forced to give up the command of his division on the following day. It was taken over by Hatch. So in a sense, the remarkable efforts of the soldiers of both sides at Bronner Farm were mooted by events. Uh, it, that reminds us that in, in spite of our great interest in this, uh, in the American Civil War, it is a tragedy. Uh, it's the, the paramount tragedy of the human species, surely is warfare. Browder Farm is another example of the soldiers' war, as distinguished from the war of grand strategy and tactics. Uh, and the soldiers, as I have said, of both sides here endured. Thank you very much.
our nation, our chieftain so brave and so true. We'll go for the great reformation, for Lincoln and liberty too. We'll go for the son of Kentucky, the hero of Hoosier and through. The pride of the sucker so lucky, for Lincoln and liberty too. Our David's good sling is unerring, the slave-ocrat's giant he slew. Shout for the freedom preferring For Lincoln and liberty too We'll go for the son of Kentucky The hero of Hoosier and through The pride of the suckers so lucky Oh, Lincoln and Liberty too. 